We've made it to chapter 2 of Romans in our study together. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. In chapter 1, Paul introduced the letter, then quickly took us into a discussion on the gospel message. He was writing to this church in Rome, letting them know that he had a desire to come and minister to them and preach to them the message of the gospel. He then proceeded to launch into a discussion of what the gospel is, the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. To Jew and Gentile alike, which encompasses everyone on earth, belief in the gospel of God, the message of the cross of Christ, is the only means of salvation. From verses 18 through 32, the verses we looked at in our last two studies together, we saw the start of the problem. If you're going to talk about the gospel, God's good news, you have to understand what the bad news is first. And the bad news is that mankind is sinful. God has revealed himself to mankind, but mankind, instead of taking what God has revealed and using it to honor and give glory to him as he deserves, has instead chosen to suppress the truth that he knows in his own unrighteousness. And because of that, God has revealed his wrath against him. We talked about how God has revealed his general revelation to all men. Not enough revelation to save him, but it is enough to condemn him, because it's enough revelation that means that he is without excuse, and he stands condemned before God. In his wrath, God has handed him over to his impurity, to his degraded passions, to his depraved mind, and given him a push toward his own lustful, sinful desires, which mankind happily engages in, degrading and dishonoring his own body in wicked and sinful ways, and Paul listed out over 21 sins that the unregenerate man fills himself with in his quest to glorify himself over and above God. We saw all of this in chapter 1, taking us right down to verse 32, which told us, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They sin, they do these things that are not proper, and what's worse, what really condemns them, is that they know the ordinance of God. This simply means that they know that what they are doing is wrong, and that these things are worthy of death. They know it. This is all because they have rejected God. That is really the sin of which they are guilty. They know God, know that he exists, but have rejected him, and as a consequence of that rejection, he has handed them over to their own lusts. Now, in chapter 1, that's the first group of people that Paul has shown to us, people who have just received a very general revelation of God through the creation. But that's just the very first part of what he has to show us. As we've talked about, Romans is a book that progresses as Paul writes it. Paul starts off very basic, and he builds on what he writes about, giving us a complete picture that takes us through eight chapters, then another three, then another five on top of that to complete the whole letter. And I've mentioned before that as we go through here, we need to take care to keep this in mind because there are some things that he might reveal early on that we won't be able to fully understand until he gets to another point a little way down the line. It's a very logical progression that he takes us through here as he builds layer upon layer of information until we have all of the pieces at the end where he has shown us how they all intricately fit together. In our study so far, we have just gone through building block number one. 
Chapter 1 had to do with Gentiles, because they didn't know anything but the very basics. I think instead of labeling it as Gentiles, you could actually say that it has to do with everyone. It's the widespread net that captures what every man and woman on earth, from creation down until now, knows about God and who he is. It's what everyone knows, and in their rejection of him, he turns them over to their sins. Now, at the start of chapter 2, we turn to a new group of people, those who know more, who have been given direct revelation of God. As we progress through the chapter, Paul will end up talking about the Jews, the nation that God has specifically chosen for himself and had given direct knowledge of himself through the law and the prophets. But Paul doesn't specifically name the Jews until we get to verse 17. And so for the first 11 verses, he will speak generally about those who have more knowledge than the people he referred to in chapter 1. And as we make our way to verse 17, we will see that this readily includes the Jews and is predominantly the group that Paul has in mind through this entire discussion. I look at these first 16 verses like a mystery movie. You could say mystery novel, but I'm more of a movie guy, so I'll say movie. You go through the movie, and you're trying to figure out who the killer is. And clues are slowly being revealed as time goes on, and then at some point you find out that it's the butler, because it's always the butler, I guess. Somebody that maybe you suspected, but didn't really know until they were revealed as the killer, and now it all makes sense to you. That's why... Uh, he said that earlier, or that's why he was suspiciously missing at one point. You can look back to see how all the clues really pointed to him being the guilty one all along. And now that you know that about the movie, whenever you watch it, you know that the butler did it. Well, when we start off in chapter 2, Paul will have the Jews in mind, even though we don't find out that for sure until we get to verse 17. So pardon me for spoiling the movie, but this is where he's going. So for the first 16 verses of the chapter, all we really know for sure is that he's talking about people who have more knowledge than those he was talking about in chapter 1. And they will have an attitude of superiority over them because of what it is that they know. Now if that's confusing to you, I'm sorry, but as we go through here, I will do my best to clear it up and unravel Paul's method as we go along. So as we get to our first look of verse 1, uh, chapter 2, we're going to see that there is a change in Paul's subject here. He says in verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now note where the verse starts off, therefore, indicating that he is relating what he's about to say with what he previously said. Here it refers back to the previous section, beginning in verse 18 talking about that first building block, the whole of sinful humanity. Therefore, based on the wrath of God being revealed against them for their suppression of the truth, and their being handed over for their sins, knowing that their sins make them worthy of death, you are without excuse. Note there is a change here from talking about they and them. Now, he says, you are without excuse. You who? Who's he talking about here? Well, I've already kind of given it away. He's talking about those who have more knowledge, those who at the, at the very least have a more defined sense of morality. And ultimately, we'll see this applied to the Jews who had the benefit of the law, the direct prophecy from God. 
Now, one thing to note, he's not directly addressing those in the church at Rome, the Roman believers. He's employing here what we call a diatribe or a logical argument against a non-specific or imaginary opponent. Basically, he's anticipating a reaction to what he's just been talking about and is confronting it with a response. So this is how I see what Paul is doing here with this response. He's just finished with his comments against fallen man and his sin. They are given over to their lusts. They exchange the natural function of the opposite sex with the unnatural function of the same sex. They indulge in their own sexually immoral impulses. They murder. They're wicked. They have malice. They are insolent. They are boastful. They are disobedient to parents. They are haters of God. They are deceitful, untrustworthy. This is what they are. This is what they do. And you can imagine, as Paul goes through this list, you can hear those with a sense of morality commenting in the background as Paul goes through these feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You tell them, Paul. You let them know what they're doing is wrong. Now is he completely, uh, is he as he completes and finishes with what they do, he turns to those who would be shouting agreement with him, and he says this, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. He's now taking the argument from this is what they do, and now turns to those who have more of a sense of morality and tells them, this is what you do. So what's the situation here? What is really going on? Those who have more knowledge, who might be right there with him saying, yeah, they, should be, they shouldn't be involved in those wicked and vile things. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. They're hypocrites because they're guilty of this themselves. Now we need to point out that although we're talking about people with more knowledge, we're still not talking about people who are lost, uh, who are not believers. Or I'm sorry, we're still talking about people who are lost, who are not believers. Paul isn't talking about people who are saved. He's still talking about unbelievers. Who He's just moved up a level from one group who had no direct knowledge at all to now we're talking about those who have some more knowledge. But we need to be clear they are still not saved. This is fallen, sinful man that we're talking about. Those who would agree about the morality of some kinds of sins, but would then fall into the trap of readily accepting other kinds of sins. One comment I heard this week was about people in prison and the code that they sometimes have. When people who have committed crimes, uh, certain crimes are put into prison, they sometimes have to be put into a special section so that they're safe from the other prisoners. Why? Because the, the crime that they have committed is seen as vile and wicked by those other prisoners, even as compared to the crimes of all the rest of the people who are in prison themselves. They have a sense of morality, but they themselves are also guilty. They're in prison themselves. Here, we have people talking about these lists of sins that Paul presented in chapter 1. They turn up their nose at some of them. We would never murder. We would never commit homosexual acts. We would never commit adultery. But would they gossip? Would they disobey parents? Would they slander someone else? Maybe they're untrustworthy. Eh, what's the big deal about those? You see, the list of sins... 
They are all sins, not just the quote-unquote really bad ones and the not-so-bad ones to the inconsequential ones. They're all bad. They're all sin. Paul isn't saying here that they commit them all or commit them equally, but the point is if you commit any of them, you are guilty of committing sin, just the same as anyone else. So here is a group of people that Paul says are personally without excuse. Specifically, those that are passing judgment. Maybe they're Jews who are looking at the Gentiles and are feeling superior, are making judgments based on what they see, thinking that they are better than the rest of mankind because of who they are. What does Paul say? He says, in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. As they stand there and judge, they are really judging themselves. They bring condemnation to themselves. The key in verse 1 of chapter 2 is hypocrisy. These are people who are in moral judgment of others, but are doing the same things themselves. For you who judge practice the same things. This is the same situation that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about the Jews' tendency to judge each other's sins instead of taking care of their own first. In Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This was a common Jewish problem, one that wasn't unique to them. It's really a humanity problem, but we see throughout Scripture that this was an issue. Now again, it doesn't mean that they have committed all of the same sins, but the point here is that they are guilty of sin. They are guilty of having a heart that is in disobedience to God. You don't have to be a murderer to qualify as a wicked sinner. You just have to be a sinner. All sin is wicked. Mankind fell in the garden, not when Cain killed Abel, the first murder took place, but when Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. That was enough to condemn mankind, to separate us from God for all eternity. Again, Paul is dealing with fallen humanity, with people who feel that their own morality makes them superior, and therefore makes them closer to God than others, and that's just not the case. They stand condemned before God because they judge others when they haven't done what is necessary to take care of their own sin. Paul will go on in verse 2 and make a logical appeal to those who would claim to have this moral superiority. Verse 2 says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Here he switches from accusation to personal involvement. We know. He is stating a truth that someone who claims to acknowledge God would be familiar with. This would be common knowledge, and that is that God's judgment is true and absolute. Especially in the case of the Jews, they would be well aware that God will judge sinners, 
They just didn't feel that they were a part of that group. They see themselves as on God's side. But if they are fallen and still committing the same sins that they always have, the same sins that even those who don't claim to believe there is a God commit, then they aren't on God's side at all, no matter what it is that they claim. Have you ever noticed that it's much more difficult to show someone who is religious or moral that they are a sinner than, than it is to show someone who is openly rebellious to God? The reason for that is that they don't see their need. They don't see that there's anything wrong with them. If I went to the doctor with a fever and a cough and I was weak and I had a rash all over my body and I could barely sit myself up and he rushed into the room and told me I needed this certain treatment right now where I was going to die, how would I respond? I'd say, give it to me. Give me the treatment. But if I came in for a checkup as the model of health, having eaten right, exercised, feeling fine and having the strength of an ox, and he rushed in and told me, I needed treatment right now or I was going to die. I'd say, what are you talking about? I feel fine. What do you mean I'm going to die? I don't need what that is that you're going to give me. Well, that's what the Jews' moral health was like. And many people today are the same way. People today who go around claiming to have religion, to be a religious person, even claiming to be a part of Christianity, when in reality they have nothing to do with true biblical Christianity. Why is it harder for them to understand? We tend to think that it would be easier. But it's not, because in their eyes, they don't need anything. They don't have anything wrong with them. But that's not true. Paul is showing them that they are going to die, that the righteous judgment of God is going to fall on them. And anyone that practices such things, whether they claim to be religious or moral or not, if you practice such things, if your life is characterized by these sins, then God's judgment falls on you. So he continues on in verses 3 and 4, showing them the next logical steps with a couple of rhetorical questions. He says in verse 3, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you escape the judgment of God? What do you think is going to happen? You sit and pass judgment on others, Look at their sins. Rightly say that God will judge them for their sins. And yet, you commit those sins yourself. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think that they will be judged while you won't be judged? In the case of Israel, the Jews did have this mindset. Because they thought that who they were was good enough. They thought that since they were God's chosen people... That meant that they got a pass, that since they were Jews, they were in, and nothing could change that. We'll see as we continue through here, and especially when we get to the end of the chapter, that nothing could be further from the truth. Once again, there are many today that think the same thing. If you are a Catholic, you have nothing to worry about. Maybe spend a little time in purgatory, but your membership gets you in. People put that same type of stock in just being part of a church, belonging to one denomination or other for their whole lives. They can pass judgment on others, but since they belong to that church, they believe that they can live whatever sinful lifestyle they want, and it will all be good in the end. But that's not what Paul says here. 
do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? And that's exactly what they think. But they are sadly mistaken. They are deluding themselves. How arrogant it is to think that God will judge others, but he wouldn't judge you. And yet that is the idea here. It's important to remind us again here that we aren't talking about a difference between God how, about how God deals with believers and unbelievers. This isn't a discussion concerning the redeemed and the unredeemed, but we are talking about the pool of sinful, unredeemed humanity. It's just that a part of the pool has very little knowledge about God or no knowledge of God, while the other part has been given more knowledge. But no part of this pool has ever come to saving faith. This is a pool of fallen, sinful humanity. Now, that's not to say that as believers, we don't sometimes fall into the same trap ourselves. We take a moral high ground, consider ourselves superior to the unbelievers, when in reality, we were no better than they were before we became saved. We consider ourselves better than them when we should be considering ourselves in debt to them. Just as Paul said in, in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Paul saw himself as being indebted to everyone, not as being superior to them. As believers, we recognize that those who are lost in their sin, but is our reaction, I'm glad I'm not like them? Or is it, they really need to know the Lord. I have the power of the gospel to share with them, and I need to share this with them. But here in Romans 2, we are talking about how God deals with those who are unredeemed, who think they have escaped or are somehow immune to the punishment of God. God will deal with them the same as with others. In verse 4, we read what their attitude toward their own self-righteousness really shows about them. He says in verse 4, oh, do you think, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? At the beginning of the verse, Paul uses the word or. But it's important to note that he's not making this an option between this verse and the last verse. He isn't asking them, are you doing it this way, like in verse 3, or are you doing it like in verse 4? But he's really linking the two ideas. And what, he said, what he's saying is that by thinking that God will deal with them differently, these people are really thinking lightly of what it is that God is doing. They are despising, scorning, showing contempt. This is what the phrase, think lightly, means here. What are they showing contempt for? The riches or abundance of God in three areas. One, in his kindness, goodness or gentleness, showing the moral excellence of God. Two, his tolerance, which is self-restraint, the fact that he doesn't act out rashly. The third area, his patience, long-suffering, he is not rushing into judgment. All these together paint a picture of what is really going on here, and that is that God is dealing patiently with the world. We asked the question last time, why would God turn them over to their sins? Why does that seem just for him to show his wrath by, by just giving them over to the things that they want to do anyway? 
Doesn't that seem counterproductive? Doesn't that just give them more time to commit more sins? On the one hand, yes, it does. And we'll get to that point in the next verse. But on the other hand, there is also another factor that is involved. And we see that at the end of verse 4. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. God is being patient and tolerant and kind because it provides fallen man with time to repent of their sins. Just consider for a minute how remarkable this is. How remarkable, how loving of a statement that Paul presents us with here. These fallen people who have suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness, who have taken God's glory and given it to corruptible things, worshipped and served the creature over him, who have taken the knowledge that they have of God, and instead of recognizing his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience for what it is, have looked down on it, treated it with contempt by abusing it and using it as an excuse to live sinful lives, lives turned over to their own lustful flesh. And yet he manifests his kindness towards them to give them time to repent. Peter tells his readers the same thing, really, in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 9. Where he says in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter is talking about the timing of the day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God, and how some see it, its delay as slowness. But he explains it's actually God's patience at work, God providing time for unbelievers to come to salvation. Just as Paul presents in Romans chapter 2, it is time for them to repent, to turn from their sinful ways. Is God's wrath upon them? Yes. Is God keenly aware of every evil deed that they do? Yes. But is God showing kindness to them by providing them time to come to him in saving faith, not striking them down immediately, not casting them away at their first transgression. Yes, absolutely he is. People sometimes ask, what has God ever done for me? Well, here it is. They have no idea what they're really asking. He's showing his, his love to them every day by providing them with an opportunity to come to repentance. But, as Paul points out here, during this time, there are those who are taking his patience and kindness for granted, and they are actually showing contempt for his kindness. You know what this leads to? This leads to the wrong conclusion about the judgment of God. You get people who think that if God hasn't punished them for their sin, then their sin must be okay. I keep doing it. I keep getting away with it. Therefore, God must not care that I'm doing it. That's a dangerous thought for people to have. So, he's being patient that they will repent. But unfortunately, we come to verse 5, and we see how they really handle the time that they've been given. Verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But there is a contrast here. They could use this time to repent, but they don't. 
because they are stubborn and they do not repent. They are storing up God's wrath. We saw in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is continually being poured out on the earth even now. They are being given over to their sinful, depraved lives. But here we have a continuation of that picture, more information. Here we have reference to a time that is yet to come when God's wrath will reach a climax and his righteous judgment will be poured out in full force. The phrase storing up usually goes along with the gathering of treasures or possessions. But here, Paul uses it to show that they are accumulating for themselves more wrath from God. And that if they don't repent in the time that God has given them, it will be a terrible day for them. The world will be shocked when God's wrath is revealed in full force. Revelation chapter 14 paints a picture of the wine presses being trodden, as well as the sinners drinking of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, in Revelation 14.10. That's an extremely frightening image. Anyone who has never put their faith and trust in Christ has opportunity now to do it. He is graciously giving them time. Every day that they draw breath, there is time. Now is the time to repent, because judgment is coming. It will be revealed, and that's where Paul is going next in verses 6 through 11. There will be an impartial judgment coming upon everyone, and we see that in verse 6, and then he will reiterate it down in verse 11. In the next section, Paul uses a literary tool that's used in Greek writing. It's known as a chiasmus. It's a fancy word that just means a crisscrossing of ideas. It's a tool used to drive a point home, to get something across by repeating it. And the pattern that is repeated is backwards from the way that it's originally stated. For example, I might say, the edification of the church body is an important part of the teaching of God's word. When we get together to study the scriptures, the church body is built up and encouraged. In that phrase or that sentence, I start with talking about edifying the church. Then the next part is I mention the teaching of the word. But then I mention the teaching of the word again, and then I go back to saying that the church is built up. And I bring this up not to bore you, but to let you in on a common tool that Paul uses in his writings to drive a point home. You can look for instances of this when you read through the word. But here we have a fairly lengthy example of this, and, and it's one that covers several points. We have verse 6 and verse 11 serving as the bookends for what he's talking about in verses 7 through 10. So let me read verses 6 through 10 and see if you can pick up on what I'm talking about. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. So let me stop here for a second. We have verse 6 talking about judgment in general for everyone. Verse 7 talks about those who do good and they receive eternal life. Then verse 8 those who are selfish and disobedient, they get wrath and indignation. Now, go on in verse 9. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 11, For there is no partiality with God. So here we have the same pattern we had in verses 6 through 8, just backwards. Verse 9, tribulation and distress for those who do evil. Verse 10, glory, honor, and peace to those who do good. And verse 11, no partiality with God. He will judge everyone. So there's the pattern that Paul presents here in these verses. And actually, we could get even deeper into it and have it look a little bit different. But as we look at these verses, just keep in mind that there's this pattern that Paul goes through here. So, as we look at this next set of verses, we're going to look at them together in groups. And the verses that go together in this pattern, starting with verses 6 and 11, God is the one to whom Paul is referring in verse 6, relating back to verse 5. For God is the one who will reveal righteous judgment on the world. There will be a time when the world will be judged, and that is the time we're dealing with here. This is the time frame that unbelievers have been storing up wrath for themselves. Where will this wrath come from? It will be poured out upon them by God. The key point here isn't with the individual actions that will be judged, although he will speak to that. And it isn't with who will be judging them. It is, of course, God who does that. But the key point is who will be judged. It isn't going to be just those people we looked at in chapter 1 who don't know anything, but it will include everyone, those who don't know anything and those who do know something, or as Paul makes clear here, Jew and Gentile alike. So in Paul's bookends, verses 6 and 11, he states that judgment will fall impartially. It will fall without regard to knowledge, wealth, intelligence, nationality, or anything else, it will fall on every person the same way. Verse 6 says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds? And verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. God will render judgment according to the deeds of men. This sounds an awful lot like God will judge based on works, doesn't it? Yes, it does, and that's because he will. Every judgment of Scripture is a judgment that's based on works. When God judges, he judges based on what a person has done in their life or on their actions. Now, get your fingers ready. We're going to look at several verses that see this. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, in verse 14, says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In that verse, we see it right off. Every act is brought to judgment. Nothing is kept secret from God. People need to understand that. We need to understand that. He sees it all and will judge it all, whether good or evil. But you note what it is that he's judging. It's every act. It's the things that they do. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 17 you look down at verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his, what? Deeds. Here we see the association between what is in a man's heart and what a man does. What someone does is a direct reflection of what is in their heart. God can judge the deeds because the deeds show the condition of a person's heart. We also see this over in the New Testament because there is no difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament in this regard. Matthew chapter 7. If you look down in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not the ones who call upon his name, but the ones who do his will who will enter into his kingdom. These are revealed to be his true children. Matthew chapter 16. Down in verse 27. Here it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Again, to what he does. Turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. Here it says, down in verse 28, John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. Once again, judgment is based on what they did, whether good or evil. Turn over to the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter of Revelation. Here we have the final judgment. Revelation 20, look down in verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man or every one of them, according to their deeds. This is the great white throne, the climax of judgment in human history, where everyone who dies in unbelief will stand someday. And we see the books opened, and the dead judged from what is in the books. The books contain the record of their deeds, the things which they have done, and they are judged by them. One more reference. Turn over a couple more chapters to chapter 22 of Revelation. This is our last one here. Revelation 22, look down in verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Even in the very last chapter of the Bible, we see this truth unfold. This time in reference to rewards, but the basis for judgment is the same, based on our deeds or our works. Throughout Scripture, it's obvious that mankind is judged based on works, because as we saw in Jeremiah 17, the works reveal what's in the heart. 
We'll see this in more detail in the coming verses. But as every man will be judged according to their works, that means that no one is exempt from this. God has no partiality. The Jews who thought that they were getting off scot-free, they were sadly mistaken. Because God doesn't judge based on who they are, he judges based on what? On what they do, no matter who they are. When God looks at what they do, he either sees them doing good or doing evil. That is what their judgment is based upon. So these verses here, 6 and 11, they bookend this passage that we're looking at. Now, as we look deeper inside, we uncover the next layers of Paul's idea here, starting with those who do good. Verse 7, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Now skip to verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These are the ones who persevere in doing good. And this means that the pattern of their lives is to continually do good. Now, we need to be very careful here and remind ourselves once again that here in chapter 2, we are at the very beginning of Paul's argument, of the building blocks of the gospel that he's laying out for us. Some people misunderstand what Paul is saying here and think that he is teaching a works-based salvation, that he is saying that you can obtain eternal life by doing good things, that if it is your intention to do good and you do mostly good things in your life, then you will have eternal life and that you can earn that. But that is not at all what Paul is teaching, even though at first glance it might sound that way, but it's not. And we know this from the rest of the book. We need to understand this passage in context with the rest of what we're going to see in the book of Romans. Now, it may be skipping ahead, but I don't want to leave you hanging on this for several more weeks. Romans 3.12 tells us, that there is none who does good, not even one. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 3 tells us that no flesh will be justified in God's sight by works. Then verse 28 of chapter 3 tells us that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Paul is not teaching here in chapter 2 that good works will save a person. He makes that abundantly clear later on. What he is teaching is that a person whose pattern of life is filled with doing good works, he says in verse 10, who perseveres in that, he says in verse 7, is a person who will have eternal life, who will have glory and honor and peace when their works are judged by God. Only a person who is seen by God as righteous in their actions will be judged in this way. Now, we have to ask, who is that person? What person is ever seen by God as someone whose deeds are righteous? Well, we talked about this before when we looked at verse 17 of chapter 1. He said, for in it, that is the gospel from verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Only a person whom God has declared to be righteous 
through their faith in the good news of his son, will measure up to the kind of life that Paul is talking about here. Only someone who is saved is able to do what's good in God's eyes. Now, we know that. We keep that in mind as we study this. But Paul hasn't gotten to that point in his argument yet. Right now, he's presenting the very basic idea that the person who does good will have eternal life. And that is true. That is absolutely how God will judge a person when he looks at what they have done. But they will not do good on their own. They cannot do good on their own. That is the argument that Paul is building here for us. And when we get to the end of chapter 3, we'll see more of how this all fits together. So don't misunderstand what's going on here. The only person who can do good is the person who God has saved. And the people that we are talking about here in Romans chapter 2 cannot do good because they have rejected God. So, in verse 7, he shows that those who do good are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Those who have been saved, for whom this is possible, our hearts have been changed. Our minds have been renewed. We now have a different goal, that of seeking the hope that God has promised to those who belong to him. Seek glory, not selfishly for ourselves, but the glory that comes from being with him for eternity, glorified with Christ. Honor, the honor of having persevered, of being called a good and faithful servant. Immortality, living with our Lord for all eternity. These are all elements of what the reward is, eternal life. This is what is in store for those who persevere in doing good, spending eternity with God. As we look at verse 10, we also see peace thrown into the mix. The peace that comes from having a changed heart, a transformed life, the peace of knowing that we are living here only temporarily and that someday we will live in glory with him. This is for those who persevere, the ones who make it to the end, whose lives are spent doing good. Someone who is a believer will persevere to the end. This means that they won't fall away. They won't live a life of good works for a while and then quit. Someone whose life is changed by Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is changed and indwelt for their entire lives, not just for a time. We'll talk about more of this when we get to the sixth chapter of Romans. That's why Paul mentions it here. Not talking about those who do something good once in a while, but those whose lives are characterized by good works. Finally, we see that it applies to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We saw this before, back in verse 16 of chapter 1, when he talked about the gospel being the power of God for salvation. There he was using the phrase to refer to the way in which the gospel was offered, Jews first, then to the Greeks. But here, Paul is using it to reference the entirety of humanity. Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter who you are. This will be true of you no matter who you are. 
again, it goes back to the impartiality that we've talked about. Judgment will fall on everyone, Jew or Gentile. And so those who do good works will be the recipients of eternal life. Now, on the opposing side, we see the evildoers, starting in verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil for the Jew first and also of the Greek. So here we have the contrast. God is rendering to every man according to his deeds. We just saw that eternal life is given to those who do good. Here we see those who are given wrath and indignation, anger and fury. God's anger has reached a fever pitch. His patience is over at this point. It has run its course. We saw before that right now he is being kind, forbearing, and patient. But on the day of judgment, that will come to an end. This is directly contrasted to the eternal life promised to those who do good. The life for believers will be for all eternity. Likewise, God's fury will be poured out upon unbelievers for all eternity. Those who are under his wrath are characterized by being selfishly ambitious. Instead of seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that believers seek, they are focused on themselves. That's really a key difference between unbelievers and believers. It comes down to idolatry. They idolize themselves. Whatever you idolize, that's where your focus is and what you are going to spend your efforts promoting. And in this case, that is turned inward for them. Paul also says that they do not obey the truth. They are in rebellion to that which is true. What is the truth? It is the revelation of God. It is what is known to them, either explicitly or implicitly. They do not even obey that. Verse 25 of chapter 1 said, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. They would rather believe a lie than what they know to be true. It's irrational reasoning on their part. Having disobeyed the truth, what do they obey? They obey unrighteousness. If they are not obedient to the righteous ordinances of God, then they obey unrighteousness. They want to say that they don't have any master other than themselves. But in truth, they're in bondage to unrighteousness, to their own sin. They cannot function in any other capacity. And therefore, their souls will be in distress, in tribulation. This is what is in store for the ungodly. And by ungodly, that includes those who think themselves to be moral, even though they are still slaves to their own sin. Once again, we see the phrase, to the Jew first, and also of the Greek. The Jews were ones to think that they were first in salvation and last in judgment. But as we'll see next time when we get to verses 12 through 16, the opposite is actually true. Having been given more knowledge, we will see that they have priority in judgment. They of all people should know better, having had the benefit of the law to teach them. Once again, in verse 11, we see why. 
for there is no partiality with God. Judgment, all judgment is going to be on the basis of works. We will all answer for what we have done, either good or bad. Now the judgments for the believer and the unbeliever will be different, will not be at the same time. At the great white throne, when the books are opened and the dead are raised to be judged by their works, do you know what will be found? There are no good works. There will be no one at that judgment whose name is found written in the book of life. And that's a terrible thought, but it's true. Again, I can't stress this enough. This in no way means that good works can save you. That you can do enough good works to get yourself into heaven, to make yourself acceptable to God. That is not possible. The person that Paul is presenting here in these chapters is the person who is trying that. Trying to do his own works apart from God. Denying God and doing his own thing to make him or herself righteous. It's not our righteousness. It's only when God's righteousness is credited to our account that we can truly do anything that is good, that we can do anything that in God's eyes is a good work. Mankind doesn't get that. That's why they need the gospel. They need that truth, that power that God can use in their lives to open their eyes and bring them to himself in salvation. Being moral isn't enough. Being better than someone else isn't enough. Doing more good things than bad things isn't enough. A person needs the righteousness that only God can provide through the finished work of his son on the cross. Only then can a person escape the wrath and indignation that they are storing up for themselves in their daily sins and truly have the glory, honor, peace, and eternal life that Paul is talking about here.